Well, today we continue our study through the book of James, and we have come to the last chapter in that letter. Now, I have said on numerous occasions in this study that the purpose of James' letter is our maturity, that we might grow up as believers, that we might become mature as believers. And so James said we need to be mature to face the trials of life. There are some people who think that if I become a Christian, then I have no more trials, I have no more difficulties in life. Well, that is not true. And so James is saying that we need to be mature in order to face those trials. He also said that we need maturity to face the temptations of life. Just because someone becomes a believer does not mean that Satan suddenly writes you off and stops tempting you. We still are tempted, and so he said, we need maturity to deal with the temptation that comes to us. James also said we need maturity in being able to control our tongues, that we say the right things, and that we don't say wrong things. Well, today James comes to this passage of Scripture and says we need maturity in handling money. Now, you might say, well, I might as well leave because I don't have any, so this does not apply to me. A friend of Ernest Hemingway said to him once, Ernest, rich people are not like us. He said, no, they're not. They have money. Well, compared to the world, all of us have money. In fact, I read a statistic recently that said three-quarters of the world lives in a country where annual per capita income is $270. Now, when it comes to money, we normally put people in two categories, those who have it and those who don't. Well, in Scripture, there are four categories that are used. There are those who are poor without and within. They don't have any money, and they are also poor spiritually. There are those who are rich without and within. They have money, but they also are spiritual in their relationship to the Lord. Certainly that would include Moses and Joseph and David and Solomon and Isaiah and a number of other people. The third category is those who are poor without and rich within, and that would be Lazarus. Now, Lazarus, the Bible says, was a beggar, so he had nothing financially, but he was a child of God. And then the fourth category is those who are rich without and poor within, and that is the group that James is addressing in this passage of Scripture. So take your Bibles, turn with me to James chapter 5. We'll begin reading in verse number 1. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted, and their rust will be a witness against you, and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure." Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you, and the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. All right, as we look at this passage of Scripture, we begin with the accumulation of wealth. And ladies and gentlemen, it is not how much you have that is important, 
What is important is how you got it. Albert Barnes wrote, There is no sin in merely being rich. Where sin exists among the rich, it arises from the manner in which wealth is acquired. Now, the Bible does not condemn wealth. The Bible does not condemn those who are rich. In fact, the Scripture says in Joshua chapter 1, verse number 8, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. So the Bible does not condemn wealth. In fact, it tells us how to be wealthy. Now, in this passage of Scripture, James gives to us the types of wealth there in verses 2 and 3. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted. Now, when we talk about wealth, we normally think of it in terms of stocks and bonds and real estate and savings and insurance and things of that nature. Uh, 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 Barclay wrote, in the East there were three main sources of wealth. So, in biblical times, when they talked about wealth, there were three basic sources of wealth. One was grain. And in verse number 2, when he mentions riches, that probably was a reference to grain. Because if one had grain, they were considered to be wealthy. That was a treasure. That was an asset. The second was garments. You recall that uh, when Samson gave the challenge for anyone to solve his riddle, he promised them a change of garments. Because that represented wealth. And then the third source of wealth was gold and silver. So the problem that James is addressing here is not one having wealth, but the philosophy of accumulating. And there are some people who become wealthy as a result of unethical business practices. Uh, for instance, some have a product that is deceitful. It does not deliver what it promises to deliver. It is a deceitful product. Have you seen all those ads and infomercials on television about weight loss? I've seen this one with, um, who's it, Larry the Cable Guy? And he lost 50 pounds. What is he, drinking slim fast or doing something? I don't know what it was. Lost 50 pounds. I thought, well, if Larry the Cable Guy can do it, I can do it. And so I drink slim fast with every meal, and I haven't lost any weight. So there are those deceitful products. They promise something that they don't deliver. There are some people who have become wealthy through the distribution of pornography or drugs, and, and they rationalize, well, if I don't do it, then someone else is going to. And so what James is addressing here is wealth that comes through unethical, immoral practices. And so he condemns that practice, the practice of the end justifying the means. There are two violations that he mentions here. First of all, the withholding of wages in verse number 4. Behold the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you. I remember when I was a boy, my father taught me, emphasized to me that 
if I work for someone, then I was to give a day's work. If you work for someone, you take their money, then you're supposed to work. You give a day's work. And therefore, I was brought up with a very strong work ethic. So there is giving a day's work for a day's wages. But the problem here is that the worker was doing the work, but the wages were being withheld. So here the problem is, is that the laborer was not being paid for the labor that they were doing, which is contrary to Scripture. As a matter of fact, in Deuteronomy 24, verses 14 and 15, you shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy. You shall give him his wages on his day before the sun sets, for he is poor and sets his heart on it so that he may not cry against you and to the Lord, and it becomes sin in you. According to the Bible, if someone works for you, then you are to pay them. If we work for someone, we are to give a day's work for the wages we receive, but then we are to receive the wages, and that wasn't happening. And so James condemns that. The second thing he condemns were the corrupt courts in verse number 6. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. Now, here was the problem. In James' day, a person could take someone to court, but they couldn't win because the rich control the courts. And so it was possible then that if a laborer was not being paid for their labor, that they could go to court. But they couldn't win. And so James condemns that. So as I look at this passage of Scripture where James is dealing with wealth, first of all, he deals with the accumulation of wealth. How we get what we have is important to God. Second thing is the utilization of wealth. Wealth is spiritual. Money is neither spiritual nor is it unspiritual. It's just money. It is how one uses money that determines if it is spiritual or unspiritual. And so James here says in verse number 3c, It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Well, is James condemning savings? Is that, is that what is happening here? He is saying that you're not supposed to save money? I heard about a lady in Texas who married an oil man. She was talking to a friend said, I made my husband a millionaire. She said, how did you do that? She said, when I married him, he was a multimillionaire. <laughs> so there are, there are some people who think that we are not to save, that you're not to set aside anything, that there are even some who believe that that is unspiritual. It is a lack of faith for us to save. Is that what James is saying? No, the Bible says that saving is correct. In fact, Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 12, 14, For children are not responsible to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. So the Bible teaches us that we are to save. James here is condemning hoarding. Not saving. Not preparing for the future. He is condemning hoarding. Paul Cedar wrote on this passage of Scripture, To heap up treasure merely for the sake of having treasure is at the very root of sin. Such an activity leads to trusting in the treasure for security and power. It is the motivation of making that treasure a person's God. 
So James here is not condemning the saving of money, the preparing for the future. He's not condemning that. But what he is condemning is hoarding. And what was happening within the context of this scripture is that these people were hoarding their money and not paying their employees. So he says in verse 4, Behold the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you. So they were hoarding their money, holding on to their money and not paying those who were doing the work. You know the interesting thing? In less than ten years after James wrote this, Jerusalem was overthrown by the Romans, and all that they had hoarded was lost. He's speaking about hoarding here. There are some people who hoard their money, hold on to their money, and don't pay their bills, or they wait to the last minute, or they wait to a threat before they do so. There are some people who hoard their money, and they do not tithe. That's what James is talking about, those who have stored up. He is speaking of hoarding, not saving. And then in verse number 5, he says, You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Albert Barnes wrote the word translated lived in pleasure occurs only here in the New Testament. It means to live delicately, luxuriously, at ease. What James is saying is that we are more than creatures who exist for our pleasure. That's what he's saying. We are more than creatures who simply live to indulge our selfish pleasures. And then the words wanton pleasure refers to pampering, the pampering of one's sensual appetites. Do you ever see the, um, what what is that, um, the rich and famous or whatever it is, and you watch these people and, and, uh, and, and they spend all of this money. I think, my goodness. There are some people who spend thousands of dollars to spend the night in a particular hotel or somewhere. Can you imagine doing that? Thousands. I'd stay awake all night. I mean, I'm not going to sleep if I'm spending that kind of money. I'm going to at least sit there and look at it. But wanton pleasure. And he mentions fattened hearts. The word that is used there refers to an animal being fattened for slaughter. You remember the story in the Bible about the rich young ruler who came to Jesus and said, Good master, what do I have to do to have eternal life? And Jesus said, and he told him some commandments. He said, well, I've done all that from my youth. And Jesus looked at him because he knew the problem. Now, this is not something he said to everyone, but he knew the problem of this young man. And he said, sell what you have and give to the poor. And the Bible says that he went away grieved. He went away grieved because he could not turn loose of that that meant more to him than a relationship to Christ. Fattened hearts. Folks, I want you to know, whenever wealth becomes that to us, when money becomes that to us, there is a sense of fatality to it. It is fatal. So the utilization of wealth. They were selfishly motivated while neglecting the things of God. And that's what James is dealing with here. People who are selfishly motivated and neglect the things of God. Then there's the evaluation of wealth in verse number 1. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. The Bible reminds us constantly, does not condemn the having of wealth, does not, but it reminds us constantly about the temporary nature of riches. 
the temporary nature, that the value is insecure. Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 6, 17, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. Isn't it amazing how uncertain wealth is? If you keep up with the stock markets, you look at it and think, oh, I made some money today. You look at it the next day and think, oh, I lost money today. I mean, it is constantly up and down. Oil. Everyone's complaining about oil today. You know, when I moved here 22 years ago, I came from Oklahoma City, and that's uh, Oklahoma is an oil-producing state, as is Texas in that area. But I remember talking with a president of an oil company at that time, and he said, if we can make $15 a barrel, we can make money. $15 a barrel back then. And today it's, what, $127, $128 a barrel. I remember when oil was selling for $5 a barrel and less, and they were capping wells because they were going broke. I knew a number of oil people who went broke because oil wasn't making any money. The point that I'm making... Folks, is that the value, I don't care what it's in, whether it's in oil, whether it's in stocks, whether it's in bonds, no matter what it's in, it's insecure. And that's what the Bible teaches us, and we cannot keep it. You also recall the story in the Bible about the rich farmer, and he, he had the bumper crops this year. I mean, it was, a, it was a wonderful year. He had bumper crops. He said, what am I going to do with all this grain? What will I do with it? And he said, I know what I'll do. He said, I'll build bigger barns and I'll store it up. And the Bible says, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? That's one of the things we need to keep in mind. You know how much money you're going to leave whenever you die? The same as uh, Mr. Buffett. The same as Mr. Gates. We're going to leave it all. Nobody's taking anything with them. When we die, we leave behind everything. No one takes it with them. Riches are a trust from God, and therefore we are accountable to God for what we have. And there is an inherent judgment within earthly riches. They're just made that way. There is an inherent judgment within. Look at verse number two. Your riches have rotted. I don't know if you ever lived on a farm or anything, but if you have, you know that grain does not last forever. Wheat, corn, maize, all it doesn't last forever. He says, your grain is rotted. He goes on in verse number two, your garments have become moth-eaten. Those uh, clothes that you spend so much money for. Isn't it amazing how quickly they lose their value? Every year, Linda and I gather up uh, a lot of clothes and take it to the to Southeastern Seminary because of the students there, and we want to give to them. But the truth of the matter is they're not worth anything. I mean, you know, you buy them, but they're not worth anything. He says that you're close, and, 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 and realize that this was the place of wealth during James' time. He said, your grain has rotted. Your garments are moth-eaten. And verse number 3 your gold and your silver have rusted. Well, now, wait a minute. Have you ever seen rusted gold or silver? Well, that's what he says. Your gold and your silver have rusted, but it doesn't rust. I was reading this 
are doing study on this, Barclay said the point is that gold and silver do not actually rust. So James, in the most vivid way, is warning men that even the most precious and apparently most indestructible things are doomed to decay. There is a present judgment in wealth. It is inherent to the product, whatever it is. And then there's a future judgment. Look at verse number 4. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You know something? Your riches and my riches will testify for us or against us in the day we stand before the Lord. Now, that, that causes them to look different, doesn't it? That one day, my riches, my money is going to testify for me, or it's going to testify against me when I stand before the Lord. So the evaluation is temporary and it's judged. Then there's a satisfaction of wealth. And I, I want us to turn to the Apostle Paul to uh, learn how to find satisfaction in what we have. First of all, we are to have a proper attitude about wealth. And Paul says to us, don't long for wealth. In 1 Timothy 6, 9, he says, But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. Folks, here's the point that Paul is making. When you long for wealth, when it becomes really important to you, then you become very vulnerable to sin and temptation. That's the point. When that becomes the desire of your life, when that becomes the motivation of your life, and you long to get wealth, he said, you need to understand that in so doing, you become vulnerable to temptation. Don't long for wealth, and he, don't, and he says, and don't love it. In First, first Timothy 6.10, he says, for the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pang. The, the fact is, the love of wealth will steal your heart. It will lead you away from God. That's the reason the Lord said you can't serve God and mammon. You can't do it. You cannot serve God over here and mammon over here or or wealth over here. You can't serve them both. He says, so don't long for it. Don't love it. Be content. In 1 Timothy 6, 8, he says, and if we have food and covering, we shall be content. Let me say this to you. Your value is not determined by what you have in the bank or what you don't have in the bank. Your value is not determined by how much you have or how little you have. And we should live in such a way that we can be content because we believe that we have what God wants us to have. I've often said to Linda that, you know, I'm not a wealthy person because God couldn't trust me with it. I believe that God gives us what we can handle. And we should be content with what God gives to us. If we have a proper attitude, then we can have proper priorities. And what are they? Our trust is in God. Paul said in 1 Timothy 6, 17, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. Our trust is not in how much money we have in the bank. Our our trust is not in our IRA. Our trust is not in our retirement. Our trust better be in the Lord. And that's what Paul says, we trust in Him. Be generous, Paul says. 
in 1 Timothy 6.18, instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. You know, I believe this. I believe that God blesses us so that we can be a blessing. I believe that God blesses us. He has blessed you so that we can be a blessing. I think that that is one of the reasons that God has blessed America, and we better be reminded of that. God has blessed our nation that we might be a blessing to others. Be generous and store up heavenly treasure. In 1 Timothy 6:19, Paul wrote, Storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Are you storing up? Are you investing in heavenly treasure? That's what Paul is saying. Invest in the things of God. Invest in heavenly treasure. If our attitude is proper and our priorities are proper, then we will use wealth properly. We don't hoard it. We manage it. Bertha Adams died of malnutrition at the age of 71 back in 1976. Died of malnutrition. When they were going through her things, they found two keys to safety deposit boxes. When they opened the first box, they found 700 shares of AT&T stock and $200,000 in cash. When they opened the second box, they found $600,000 in cash, but she died of malnutrition. We don't hoard. We manage what God has trusted us. We don't withhold. We pay our debts. Don't be selfish. Share generously. Henry Kissinger wrote, To Americans... Usually tragedy is wanting something very badly and not getting it. Many people have to learn in their private lives that perhaps the worst form of tragedy is wanting something badly, getting it, and finding it empty. How we use wealth is important to God, not how much you have, but how we get it. So James is simply saying here that when it comes to wealth, to money, you need spiritual maturity to be able to handle it. And folks, here's the thing. No matter how much you have, it's never enough, and it never satisfies. There's only one thing that can satisfy the heart, and that is Jesus. Only Jesus can truly satisfy your heart. Do you know him? Do you know Jesus? I'm going to ask that you bow your heads with me, please. As our heads are bowed and eyes are closed. I don't have a question today as to whether or not you love the Lord. I think that probably most of you do. But let me ask you a question. Is He the priority of your life? You see, Jesus said, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. You love the Lord, but is He first in your life? Is He priority in your life? Because if He is not, you're going to be trying to find satisfaction everywhere else, and you never will. Only Jesus gives you satisfaction. Is He priority in your life? Because that's the invitation today, that you will make Him priority. If you're not a believer, if you're not a Christian, today that you'll commit your life to Him. And if you are that He will be 
priority first in your life. Our Father and God, we come to a time of invitation asking your blessings. I pray, Father, that you will examine us as we examine ourselves and show us what you see. Lord, that you'll draw us unto Jesus. I pray for those who are not saved that they'll be saved. I pray for others who need to make commitments to you that they'll do so in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to ask that you stand with me, please, as we stand together. The choir sings. As they sing, you come to join the church. Our doors are open to you to trust Christ. You come. I'll greet you as you do.